So, Churn, in this March madness, have you watched any elections so far? Definitely. And I'm sure you have watched one today as well with the Western Australian state election that took place so far. I did indeed. I mean, to be honest, it was over extremely quickly. It was nice to have one that played out in 45 minutes rather than five days as we had last year in the US. But um, oh, and by the way, how good is Anthony Green over at a magic wall? Absolutely fabulous as always. And definitely Australia's version of John King. <laughs> oh, well, then it is Saturday, the 13th of March, 2021. And this is Ballad to Talk About. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always is my co-host Churn. How are you getting on Churn? I'm doing good thanks. It's uh, I'm looking for, um, it's been a long long, it's, it's only March and it feels like time has gone past really quickly. We're nearly a quarter of the year done already so far. I cannot believe it. Every day takes me by surprise just how quickly it flies by at the moment. <laughs> Well, one thing that is continuing is the fact that there are still so many elections to come in, the, in throughout this month. This weekend, we are, we, are, we are seeing the national elections to come in the Netherlands, and tomorrow will be the state elections in Baden-Württemberg and Rijden-Palatinate, as we discussed last week. Plus, as we previewed a bit earlier, both of us have been watching the Western Australian state election, which will be the focus of today's podcast and a wider discussion about how Scott Morrison is travelling as he looked at a potential election in the second half of the year. Yes, we'll be discussing the hot-off-the-press results that have been trickling in this morning, and we'll be taking, as Chern said, a broader look at the state of Australian politics just as their 2021 electoral year kicks off. But before we get to all that, I thought it would be nice in the week of International Women's Day, which was on Monday, to have a chat about some inspirational women in politics. So in advance of today's pod, we challenged each other to bring a handful of our personal, most inspirational women in politics, some who may be well known to our listeners and others potentially not. So how about you kick us off, Chern? Who's a name that you're going to bring to the table? We're going to talk really about two themes here, women political leaders in the East and female political leaders in the West, because we think that they're interesting facets to discuss in the East and the West. But we'll start off in the East because the first female political leaders originated in the East. And I decided to go with Indira Gandhi, who is the former and only female Prime Minister of India. She served as Prime Minister from 1966 to 1977, and again from 1980 until 1984, when she was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards over the storming Operation Blue Star, which I'll talk a bit later. Um, she won elections in both 1967 and 1971, and then she lost it badly in 77 and came back and won a landslide in 1980. And she really brought, I think during her time as, lead, um, as leader of the Congress party, she was initially appointed prime minister because there was a view that she could be controlled in a way that by the Congress Party Power Guard um, and the Old Guard, which turned out to be actually a completely false proposition. And she, and, and she transformed India that in a way which I suspected that many of the people when initially she was appointed prime minister didn't expect her to actually. In fact, when she first became prime minister, she was called by the media and the opposition um, as a dumb doll or puppet in Hindi. So clearly, they didn't really have many high hopes for her, but yet she still led quite a successful political career. Yeah, and it's interesting because the first female elected head of government was also in the East, and that was in 1960 in the the newly, at the time, independent Sri Lanka, which was Sirimavo Bandaraneki. I apologise with that pronunciation if it was not quite there. But between 1960 and the late 20th century, she actually served three terms as prime minister and totaled 18 years, which is quite an extensive period in power. But as with Indira Gandhi, there's there's some interesting facets here, which is that 
she took over from her husband after her husband was assassinated. And in her time as prime minister, was responsible for nationalizing huge swathes of the Sri Lankan economy, including the education sector. She set up a state-run economy, nationalized banks, nationalized huge swathes of industry, and then also started off a Sri Lankan political dynasty because fast forward 30 years, her daughter became Sri Lanka's first female president. So it was really a family affair at the time in Sri Lanka. But I just find it interesting that we have two women here who have brought to the table who are pioneering women in their own right in the political sphere. But it's interesting that both of them took over from a very family-centered point of view, isn't Indeed. it? Indeed. And Indira Gandhi herself um, is not related to Mahatma Gandhi. She's actually the daughter of Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the first prime minister of India. Um, so that's a slightly mis- a miscommunicated fact, because a lot of people assume that because of the Gandhi last name, that she was related to Muhammad Gandhi. She's actually related to Jawaharlal Nehru. A funny fact about Banaranaki, and I also apologize for butchering the pronunciation of it. Um, her last stint as prime minister was actually from 1994 to 2000, was, under, was actually under her daughter, who was the president at the time, Chanrika Kumar. Kumaratanga. A real family affair. It was really, a f- and that reinforces the point that it's a family affair. And that suggests to me that for a lot of the female political leaders to become either prime minister or president in their respective countries, they have to ride on a name on which people are already familiar with and attach a strong political legacy to. I can't think of many examples actually in the East of certainly the case in which a female political leader has risen without either being the, hus- being the husband of a person who was previously in government or whose parents, whose father was also prime minister or president. Further examples include Benazir Bhutto, the former prime minister of Pakistan. His, her father served as um, prime minister beforehand. And in Bangladesh, which the current prime minister, Sheikh Hasina, her, hus- her father was Sheikh Rahman, who was known as a former, the first president of Bangladesh, often considered the father of Bangladesh, and Khalida Zia, the leader of the opposition, well, not currently, she's currently jailed. She, her husband was Zayaf Rahman, who was himself a former president as well. So there's a common theme that runs through a lot of Eastern political leaders that they start off being part of a family dynasty. But there have been quite a few occasions, Sheikh Hasina, Indira Gandhi, that have managed to very much outlast what people's expectations of how long they were expected to serve. And I think that's, re- and that's why we chose um, those two polit- particular female leaders as um, people to highlight during this International Women's Week. Yeah, a quick question on that. So we, I, I found a statistic that 75% of all female prime ministers and presidents in history took, have taken office between the present day and 1996. So that's in the last 25 years. But most of the first female world leaders, particularly that 25% that didn't take place after 1996, were in the East. Why do you think these political breakthroughs, if you have any theories, why do you think they happened in the East in advance of them happening in the West, in Europe in particular? That's a very good question. I think they often took over in times in which people were nostalgic or wanted to continue a particular legacy. Um, however, the old guard or the people who run their respective parties still wanted to be in charge. In other words, they wanted to reap the benefits of electoral success, but still retain control behind the scenes. And therefore, they often put female political leaders who are connected in some ways to a particular legacy uh, as prime minister and then control them behind the scenes. But what they underestimated is that quite a few female political leaders, like the Indira Gandhis of the world, have outmaneuvered the people who thought that they could be easily controlled and then sought to implement their own legacy. So, and I think what is also very interesting is that a lot of the female political leaders start off tend to be of the center-left variety as well. Your example talked about nationalizing of the banks, something which Indira Gandhi also did in India as well. 
she instituted mm-hmm. a lot of nationalization. In fact, um, Morale, Morale Daisy, who fought with her to become prime minister in 1966, actually left the government in nine. Well, there was she actually was sacked from the Congress Party and formed Congress I, Congress Indira. But there was a split within Congress between Indira Gandhi and Morari Desi over economic policy, actually, in particular. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that they were, I suspect, appointed really mm-hmm. as a means of that was relatively easy to be controlled by the old guard, but it turned out to be less subservient in a few cases than they were actually thought. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think it's super interesting and I completely buy your arguments. Like, I don't know what the answer is to these questions. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that we saw a lot of these breakthroughs take place in the East, whereas in quite a lot of other civil liberties movements, particularly we were talking about for the whole of LGBT History Month about the gay rights movement, it tends to be in the West where the advances are made and then the East comes a bit later. So it's interesting that, at least in the political sphere, that the women female representation started much earlier in the other half of the world. I thought that was very interesting. It's interesting to draw parallels actually with South America because one of the first female leaders in South America was Isabel Perón, who was obviously one of the later wives of Juan Perón in Argentina. But then you had uh, admittedly short-lived careers of people like Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. So it's interesting to see the comparisons between there where you had one definitely coming from a legacy position and one very much not. To be honest, I kind of disagree with your sentiment, uh, assessment of South American political leaders, because Dilma Rousseff was essentially running as Lula da Silva's third term. She was a former chief of staff to Lula, and she served in the cabinet of Lula da Silva and was really running as the continuation of his legacy and the broader Brazilian Workers' Party legacy. And if we look at other strong female South American leaders, Michelle Bachelet, although she did gain a good reputation as a, the first fem- a def- female defense minister and previously health minister, she was previously the daughter of Alberto Bachelet, who quite a lot of Chileans remember as one of the generals that sided with Salvador Allende rather than Agosto Pinochet when Salvador Allende was deposed as president. And Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, the current vice president and former president of Argentina, she is the wife of Nestor Kirchner, who really started the Kirchner dynasty. So I feel like there is some parallels between what is happening in South America and what is currently happening in Asia. So I think part of the story to me is this idea of development and a country becomes more economically development. Maybe as, mm-hmm. as, as, as countries develop, more women will enter the workforce and people get used to the idea of more women in the workforce and therefore more open to the fact that there are more female political leaders and maybe have a more liberal mindset, really. Yeah, I think we talked about this when we were discussing the Ecuadorian presidential election. But I think it's not necessarily just a problem with women in politics. I think it's a more broader problem with parties latching onto certain legacies and being very individual driven beyond women in politics and potentially developments in in just how parties are run more generally in these areas of the world will also mean that women get increasingly involved as well at the same time. In, indeed, and let's just take a look at Indira Gandhi again, because the Congress party has essentially been unable to shake its leadership beyond the Nehru Gandhi family. Um, after Indira was assassinated in 1984, her son Rajiv Gandhi became prime minister. And although th- throughout the 90s, it was thought that Congress had gotten rid of this of the Nehru Gandhi influence in two, in 2004 Sonia Gandhi was the the wife of Rajiv Gandhi who himself was assassinated led uh, the congress to victory but she d- didn't want to become prime minister and instead appointed Manmohan Singh but was largely seen as the power behind the throne and since 2004 they've still been run by a Gandhi essentially Rahul Gandhi, Sonia Gandhi's son, tried to run it for a while but didn't fare well uh, against Narendra Modi. And now Sonia Gandhi is still back in charge. So they can't seem to shake off in a lot of these Asian countries, this family legacy. Um, So yes, I do agree that their politics runs a bit differently in that aspect. 
Extremely interesting. Um, are there any names you want to bring to the fore if we turn to the Western world? I think I want to bring out the name of the first female head of government in the Western world, and that was Margaret Thatcher. And the reason why I bring her up is that she was she took over and uh, at a time she in which she was kind of underestimated, and she later became Britain's longest-serving prime minister of the 20th century and winning three elections, serving 11 and a half years in power. And again, like Indira Gandhi, she transformed her country, but I admittedly in a completely opposite economic policy as Indira Gandhi with mass privatization um, and deregulation as well, reduction taxes and so on. And the reason why I brought her up is that I thought that she set a model for how those initial female political leaders would Act, which essentially to be their own man in government, essentially. Uh, she famously appointed only one other woman to government, which is uh, Baroness Janet Young, as leader of the House of Lords. And she led the Conservative Party, as I said earlier, to three election victories. Two of them were landslides. And her manner of her removal in November 1990 left a scar on the Conservative Party, which you could argue 30 years later still had reverberations in the party. So that I really think shows the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. To her supporters, she saved Britain as they many remembered the winter discontent that went beforehand and she completely transformed Britain for the better. And to her opponent, she's known as that woman and particularly to the mining community, she's thought less well of. So I'm not going to stand here and say that all Margaret Thatcher's legacy was bed in roses. She did make some controversial policies which not many agreed on but so did Indira Gandhi and any other political leader. But nevertheless, I think she should be recognized as the first female political leader in the Western world to get there and one of the few that didn't rely on past family relations to get to the top of the parliamentary democracy in her own country. And I think for that, her place in history is secured. What do you think, Sam? Who, do you, who would you like to nominate? Um, so I was going to bring to the fore... Um, Angela Merkel, who obviously is an extremely famous and long-serving incumbent leader of Ger the Chancellor of Germany, but I'm sure we'll be talking about her a lot this year as her tenure as German Chancellor comes to an end. But one name I did want to bring that, that I just think is quite notable to talk about in 2021 in particular, as we look to International Women's Day, is Kamala Harris, who earlier this year was sworn in as the first elected executive female member in US history, which to come in 2021 to me is is quite a startling fact. But I think really for her to, to break that barrier is a very strong thing going forward for hopefully for um, women in executive politics in the US in the future. And I think looking back on that moment, in this year, when, when we celebrate International Women's Day, is, is a big moment to look back to. But don't forget, just four years ago in the United States, they couldn't quite elect its first female president, isn't it? Yes, yeah. We could have been having this conversation four years earlier, but at least we're having it now. I think Kamala Harris is also an interesting character in the sense that I think she has had a meteoric rise, you could argue, through the Democratic Party to be the number two on the ticket. But do you think her uh, being chose, being elected vice president would enable her to become the first female for the Democrats to try again in 2024 or 2028? Or are they still slightly scarred by what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016? So in a, I'll answer the second question first. I don't think they're necessarily scarred in that way by what happened to they're scarred in many ways by what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016 but I don't think they're necessarily scarred in that way and what I find really interesting I mean we could have a whole discussion about this dynamic but we we have Australia to discuss later on but what's really interesting is that Joe Biden is really raising the profile of Kamala Harris most of the main decisions they make she is there stood right next to him especially this week when we saw the COVID relief bill passed it was almost presented as a joint effort between the two. And it very much feels like they are trying to raise the profile of her to the point that she's almost 
president-elect before the election even takes place, whenever she takes over from Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, if the Democratic Party allows that. But I just find it interesting that it's definitely presented in a combined effort way, in a, in a way that's certainly unusual in the Trump administration, but that was unusual in so many ways. Um, but you didn't necessarily see at all times in the, in the Obama administration either. I think that's very true. And I wonder whether Biden was reflecting on his own experience as vice president under Obama and what could be done differently. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, he's 78 years old. He can't go on forever. And I wonder whether there's a recognition that at the top of the Democratic Party, there needs to be a sort of handover to the next generation. Because Nancy Pelosi is no spring chicken either. Another inspirational female politician. Indeed. And she was the first female speaker of the House, actually and returned 12 years later, despite leading Democrats, to one of their worst uh, swings against them in 2010. So she's one of the most ultimate political survivors, really, in, um, in American politics. I think just a couple more questions on this entire um, round of women in politics is that a lot of the female leaders, Margaret Thatcher being and Angela Merkel being a notable exception, tend to come from the centre-left. Why do you think that is the case? My theoretical answer to this, which will come across as quite a sweeping generalization, but I think also has a, a, a bit of truth in it, is that when it comes to issues around um, women's rights, historically, centre-left parties have been very much of the idea of using affirmative action or using all-female shortlist, for example, what the Labour Party does, whereas the centre-right parties tend to be more of the, we will just leave up the framework completely open and then whoever rises through it is the deserved ascender so in that respect i think it's much more of a focus of center-left parties to try and get more women into higher positions than the than the center-right parties and i as i said that is a sweeping generalization but i think does go some way in trying to explain this historical discrepancy that's very interesting. I think you are right. But on the broader question, if you're a centre-right woman, how do you rise to the top of your parliamentary tree? Whether is it that leg up as such and the 50-50 cabinet representation that a lot of the centre-left parties employ? By being an outstanding politician, which many, many women are. I mean, look at Angela Merkel. She has been the Chancellor of Germany now for 15 years. And she is widely regarded as one of the most outstanding European politicians of, of, of at least the 21st century, if not all time, to be honest. I think it's the parties that need to take a look at themselves as well and think, well, what are the barriers that we are placing as a party on this? Even if they're not actual structural barriers, but maybe there's, there's, more, there's more subtle barriers that they need to take a look at because... As is very clear when you look at the fact that women now account for 24.5% of representation in national parliaments worldwide, that's quite a small number. So I think there is a long way to go here and there's still much to be done for, for as much as, as everybody else as opposed to the women themselves wanting to climb through politics. And more importantly, I think one of those implied barriers is the fact that a lot of female political leaders tend to take over in what I call no hope situations. In other words, their parties are deep into opposition and there's no and our desperation turned to a female leader or once they've been in government for a long time and therefore might look like a, that that they are going to be defeated heavily in the next election. So no one wants to be holding the can as such when the music stops playing. Um, I bring up Kim Campbell, uh, the short-lived Prime Minister of Canada who lasts only two months and the progressive conservatives were still heavily defeated in the election that followed, going from 167 seats or around there to two seats. So there's still a lot more of these implied barriers to overcome. For sure. And I think Jacinda Ardern is one example of how that mould can be broken and can be broken in an almightily successful fashion. Indeed, she took over with seven weeks to go, even though despite coming to power in a similar fashion, which is kind of like almost in the last minute, but uh, yes, she has then and then leading the Labour Party to its first overall majority in the PR system. 
so yeah, I think we can both agree that there is still much to be done. And that's really the reason why we take that day to just recognize how far the movement has come and how far it's got to go, as we talked about in February. Yeah, but a lot of progress has been made in recent um, episodes. I and mean, you noted that, you know, people like Kaya Callas, you know, Maya Sandu, Ingrida Simeonte. So there have been recent progress in recent months, which we can look back that that with some pride in. We do. And we certainly look back on pride here at Ballot to Talk About. I think this is a good moment to pause and we'll be right back after this. So, as we said at the top of the show, today we'll be discussing all things Australia, as Western Australia wakes up to their election results from yesterday's poll. We'll be dissecting the results in today's episode and also taking a wider look at the state of Australian politics, as Scott Morrison is trying to decide whether to take his country to the polls this year, ahead of an election that at least needs to be held in 2022. So both of us have been following the results overnight as they've come out from Western Australia. And I think it's safe to say that the result is an overwhelming blowout for the Labour Party, who greatly exceeded their already record-breaking 2017 performance. And they're predicted to take 53 of the 59 Legislative Assembly seats, with Mark McGowan winning a second term in very decisive fashion. The Liberal Party have had their worst result in history, with their leader Zach Kirkup losing his own seat and leaving the party on only two seats in the Legislative Assembly and and leaving them in third place behind the National Party and the Labour Party, which is a really poor performance for the once strong in Western Australia Liberal Party. So first of all, Chern, what are your first impressions? First of all, uh, congratulations to the opinion polls because they got it roughly correct. There was a lot of ridicule when an opinion poll came out today saying Labour will win 66% of the two party preferred. Well, currently, the Labour Party is going to get around 68 or 69% two party preferred, which is not too bad, actually, considering um, that a lot of people were expecting 60-40 as the result. So they certainly did do one better than a lot of people expected. But more broadly, I think it's useful to, to look at the scale of the Labour Party's victory. They got 59.1% share of the vote. They've won 53 out of 59 seats. M- Mia Davis is the leader of the National Party. It, it will be the first time since 1947 in which the country party, as it's then known, and now the National Party, held the leader of the opposition seat. Zach Kirkup has become the first leader in 88 years to lose his own seat. That is astonishing. And if I look at the two party preferred, he, as a leader of the party, as a first term MP, you would expect that with a higher profile, now there's a kind of incumbency factor, he will be able to resist some of the swing to a large extent. Well, he suffered a 15% swing against him, which is like three points higher than the national result. So this is just an astonishing reset of results. I personally, I knew the late Liberal Party was going to be heavily defeated. I didn't think they would get two seats because we saw that even in Britain in 1997, the Conservatives still limited the swing in a lot of their really safe seats partly because their voters are very rusted on. But even in their safer seats here, the Liberals collapse. And that is astonishing to watch. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we talked last week about how we wondered if maybe Zach Kirkup's bizarre decision to concede the election before the campaign had even been launched, about whether that would actually mean that he could hang on a bit because it might make people think, oh, well, the Labour Party is going to win. Mark McGowan is going to be Premier. So we may as well install a few more Liberal MPs to just make it so it wasn't like a one-party government. But he actually seems to be the opposite because it's got a lot worse than it probably would have been. I, I think so too, because I think what his early concession did was two things. One, if you are party faithful, it demoralized them. I mean, if your leader's raising a white flag, why do you want to be campaigning for him? 
not quite a good message, particularly when you have two weeks more of elections to go. And even before you launch your own campaign, frankly. And I think the second thing it did is that I wonder if a lot of people dislike the fact that you're not having a go. You know, the odds are against you. They like a good underdog story. We've seen that in politics. That a lot of people have had surprise victories and the underdog story really resonates through. And by raising the white flag, you can't run any of that narrative, really. And I wonder whether that also hurt Zach Kirkup. And to, to show the extent of which how that message failed is that after he conceded defeat, he tried to run an election whereby don't hand Labour total control because we know they're going to win the lower house and, be, and Mark McGowan will remain premier, but don't give them control of the upper house was their implicit message. Well, the votes are still being tallied. It's only about 12% of the vote counted or so. It looks like they are going to have 22 out of the 40 seats in the upper house. So they will have a majority alone, which I didn't think would happen. And despite a system which is biased against them, as you said last week, where half of the seats that were available were electable from regions that only where 25% of the population exists in rural areas which tend to bias against labour. So this is an astonishing result, really. Yeah, I mean, two statistics, one of which you were telling me just before we started, which is that, was it 44 seats were elected elected Labour MPs in the first round? So Labour actually increased on their seat tally from last time on purely first preference votes and got an overwhelming majority purely on first preference votes, which in, in this kind of electoral system, frankly, is astonishing. And another statistic on the Liberal Party is they will now go, because they only have two MPs, they will not be recognised as an official party in terms of state funding, so will not be eligible to even employ staff. So the infrastructure for coming back from this defeat is they might have to go to try and request money from the government to even function as a party. That's how bad the Liberal Party have performed here. Well, on a plus side for the Liberals, they have achieved gender balance because a Cottesloe MP, David Honey, is left and the deputy leader, Libby Matham, is currently the only two Liberals that are currently there. So there you go, gender balance on this brilliant week, on brilliant day for International Women's Day. Not what I think they wa- were wanted, though. Let's look at the victors because I think a lot of credit needs to go here to the Labour Party for this astonishing performance. We talked last week about how Mark McGowan is incredibly popular locally. He has approval ratings in the high 80s. But do you think that that is the only thing that accounts for the Labour Party's success today, Mark McGowan's COVID performance? Or do you think there's other demographic changes or ideological changes going on as well? Okay, first of all, I think one thing you have to understand about Western Australian electorates is that they're very small in size. So even though 500 votes might change hands, for example, that could be translating to a 5% swing rather than a 0.1% swing in the federal Australian elections, which rely on much bigger electorates. So because the fact that electorates are much smaller, the percentage swings look a lot bigger because of the fact the electorates are very small. So I think that's the first thing I would like to say. In terms of other trends as well, I'm not sure how much you can infer there are many other trends because as we discussed last week, Australian voters are very good at distinguishing state factors from federal factors in terms of choosing at state level who is best run to their public services. And you could argue that the, the McGowan government was traveling well before COVID, as I explained last week. And I think COVID certainly helped, but it didn't help that, for example, the previous opposition leader Lisa Harvey, she announced that she wanted the borders to reopen, which turned out to be a politically suicidal move, considering where most of Western Australians' opinion lied at that time. And that certainly didn't help. And it was basically the Liberals never really recovered from that as well. Lisa Harvey, by the way, also lost a seat tonight as well. So I think that the Liberals made missteps. The McGowan government had a good track record heading into COVID. That certainly helped. And I think as well that the Liberals raising the white flag, I think in this time, unlike Kathleen Wynne in 2018, 
it backfired. I generally think so as well. Yeah, I think one thing's really interesting in terms of recognizing state factors in terms of Mark McGowan's response to the coronavirus pandemic is that we've now, even in 2020, when we were seeing state elections take place in Queensland, for example, it saw the same sort of effect where a government was treated well because they'd responded well to the pandemic in the eyes of the population. And in fact, I saw a quote from Scott Morrison's office responding to these results where they said, actually, I view this quite positively, even though my party has performed terribly, because it shows that people and parties are rewarded for response to COVID. So in his eyes, he's saying, well, if that's what's happening locally in Western Australia, well, then when it comes to a federal election that I might call imminently, I will do well because I've responded well to the coronavirus pandemic nationally. Do you think that's a bit of a naive thing to say or do you think there's some truth in it? The, the thing is, though, I think there is some truth in it. If you look around the world, governments have traditionally been re-elected during this COVID period, with the big exception of President Donald Trump. So I think he's certainly hoping for that to matter. But the reality is, is that Scott Morrison's coalition was not, is not sufficiently ahead enough for that proposition to really hold at this moment. Because at the moment, federally, it's about 50-50 two-party mm-hmm. preferred. Whereas the Western Australian Labour was polling at a scarcely unbelievable 69% two-party preferred. And both have been running in COVID period, really. And yes, Scott Morrison's mm-hmm. personal approval ratings went up. So did Mark McGowan's. But the Labour vote went up alongside Mark McGowan. But the coalition vote has not risen alongside Scott Morrison's personal ratings. So I think there's a slight difference there. He's certainly hoping to frame the election as one of COVID management. But don't forget, I think people might be having different expectations of what a federal government provides compared to a state government and therefore may vote differently federally than state. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point to, to, to point out. Do you think that the Labour Party's dominance in Western Australia is here to stay? Or do you think there's hope yet for the Liberal Party in building back quite quickly because of the unique circumstances in which this election took place? So first of all, let me answer the, that question. First of all, Labour's re-elected in 2017 landslides, as I said last week, but still two years later, despite securing over 40% of the vote in the last state election in 2017, they only got 29% in Western Australia federally. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it can easily translate for Labour its support, its overwhelming support now into what will happen federally. And what McGowan has a chance to do is that since the ninth, since Richard Court's government, the, all Western Australian governments have lasted two terms. I have a good feeling that this government might last more than two because to get a swig back of that magnitude could be take it's virtually possible to do it in one election. Mm-hmm. You might need two to get there. So Mark McGowan's challenge is to translate his almighty parliamentary majority into a third term and try that into a fourth, really. But back mm-hmm. to the Liberals, I think Scott Morris's problem is that he only has a very slender majority now. He, had seven, he won 77 seats out of a parliament of 151. So he had two seats... Uh, to play for. One of his MPs, Craig Hughes, the member for Hughes, has left to join the crossbench. So Scott Morrison actually lost his floor majority after appointing a speaker. So he's starting with a very weak position. So any weaknesses in Western Australia, and now that the Liberals would not even qualify for official party status, could prove extremely challenging for Scott Morrison. And um, and the other problem he has is that his Western Australia Liberal Party will not only have the money, but its senior ministers are also under clout of controversy as well. The Federal Attorney General, Christian Porter, is currently on leave because he's dealing with some mental health issues that arose when he was subject to historical rape allegations. And the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, is also on leave after her staff was one of her staffs was raped in a ministerial office in Canberra. 
So when you have such weaknesses in the West, that could be really problematic for Scott Morrison. And I read somewhere that if these results were translated federally, we couldn't expect the Liberals to lose six seats out of their 16 mm-hmm. at the very least. And that means Scott Morrison's majority will be wiped out and will be deep in hung parliament territory. One thing that happened in 2019 which affected Western Australia's electorates is they had the electoral redistribution across Australia. And there were two electorates in particular in Western Australia that were highlighted as becoming increasingly marginal. So there's clearly a scope here, at least in terms of what would historically be seen as like raw party vote preferences for the Liberals to to be much more successful than they have been today certainly but much more successful than they were also in 2017 but it is funny that you had the the seat of John Deloop which allegedly became a 0.04 percent marginal in terms of party preference and the Labour MP Emily Hamilton won it with 73 percent of the vote and a swing of 23 percent so I I mean maybe Australia has very different perceptions of what marginal means but certainly I would not call that as a marginal result well, the other amazing stat is Southern Rivers, really. Uh, in Just before the 2017 election, it had a liberal margin of 10.9%. Tonight, uh, its Labour MP, Terry Healy, was re-elected with 77% of the primary vote and 84% two-party preferred, after having a swing to him of 26%. So you've gone from a 10% liberal margin two elections ago to... Uh, astonishing 24% labour margin are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, there are just so many examples of these statistics to just sum up the raw fact of the matter is that the Labour Party have had an astonishing night and will likely from next week be governing Western Australia as one party across both chambers with supermajority in the Legislative Assembly with basically in the lower house, free reign to do whatever they like. Emperor McGowan it is, I suspect, will be one more newspaper headline tomorrow. So if we look now to Australia more widely, I think there's a nice bridge question here, which is Australians are wondering at the moment when their next federal election will take place, because there is one due, certainly within the next 18 months, and it could take place later this year, as some have suspected. Do you think the Western Australian election results today will change any calculations on that? I think that the idea of an early election, and I remember discussions with you and I said that it looked like Scott Morrison was calling a call election the second half of the year. I, I think in recent weeks, given the Western Australian Liberals problems out West, I think Scott Morrison would be less tempted to gamble, really. Mm-hmm. Because, as I explained a bit earlier, Chris reported the Lidoretto situation. And not only that, Western Australia is due to lose one seat in the boundary changes that are due to happen. And that's almost certain to be a liberal seat. I do not want, I do not think Scott Morrison will want to go to an early election with one seat down in the West, a redistribution that could change the calculus in how, God knows how many other seats, with the Western Australian Liberal Party being such a demoralized smash state as it already is so i already began to get the feeling that before these results came out he might be less tempted to go to an early election because of the problems out west and this his government has been having recently as well with with these kind of numbers that scott morrison's dealing with even very minor changes can can cause you to no longer be prime minister And you're now sitting where the Liberal Party in Western Australia, yes, we talked about the differences between the 2017 result and the 2019 federal result within Western Australia, but you now have a Liberal Party who can't even pay for its own backroom staff. So if it's even slightly struggling to mount the same scale of campaign it mounted in 2019, that could make all the difference. It really could. But I think Scott Morrison, from a useful point of view, is that I think part of the reason why John Howard's success really was the fact that there was a Labour Premier in most of the Australian states and there's a coalition government nationally and there's kind of a tension between the centre-left holding one set of 
control over some policy and center right holding control of another set of policies. And I think people like the fact that not all one party is control of all policy platform. And it means as well that if a Labour government runs into trouble at a state level, Scott Morrison could potentially benefit from that. Hard in COVID because Australia's had a good response to COVID in general. And a lot of the mm-hmm. premiers have become much more well-known because they have control over their state borders, which have become a much publicised and talked about subject, really. But in the past, it used to be the case that if Labour governments were in trouble at the state level, that tended to benefit mm-hmm. the coalition as people wanted a check and balance, as they did not want one party to control all policy areas. Yeah, so let's talk about Scott Morrison, because he's a fascinating figure, certainly if you look within the last 18 months, because even within just the year 2020, his turnaround from being the bushfire villain in January to being the COVID hero by Christmas was quite the transformation. And we talked about this when at Christmas we did our political awards. We talked about Scott Morrison being quite the turnaround. So what what do you think is motivating this? And do you think it can hold? Or do you think as soon as the attention turns to COVID reopening or the vaccination program, which Australian government has actually not been getting very good credit for because of its slow pace, do you think this can hold or do you think this will unravel? I think Scott Morrison's turnaround was more starkly seen in his personal approval ratings. The problem is, though, is that over this COVID period, mm-hmm. his party has not benefited to the same extent as he has done. And that is a problem for him because obviously you vote for parties, although personalities do help. And we live in a 24-hour mm-hmm. media cycle, which amplifies... Um, political leaders and leaders of political parties yeah it's it's interesting because i noted down that scott morrison leads albanese on preferred prime minister polling by two to one and yet the party preference is deadlocked at 50 50 so i would be concerned if my polling for my party was deadlocked when i personally am at a peak of my personal approval ratings because it would seem that the only way is down for your party's Indeed. performance. And the coalition government's been in power for three terms. You, you and I know that the fourth is quite difficult to win. Um, very few political leaders have managed to win a fourth term. Angela Merkel being a notable exception to that rule. And the Conservatives between 1979 and 1997 did win a fourth term in 1992. So the Liberals will be really going were trying to go for the juggernaut of a fourth term, really. They have done it before in 2004 under John Howard, but it will be a tough ask for the Liberals. This, is, this election will be close. I don't think this election will be, is as clear-cut as many people see it. I think what helps Scott Morrison is that Anthony Albanese, who is the leader of the Labour Party, has not really gained much traction. Part of it is that he's an opposition leader during COVID, and we've often spoken about the trouble of gaining publicity as leader of opposition during COVID. But I think also personally, he hasn't been able to get a brand or to cut through with the public in the way Scott Morrison or some other Labour Party figures have. Yeah, I'm, I want to talk a little bit before we talk about the, the fortunes of the respective parties about the, the position of Prime Minister in Australia, because since 2007... Scott Morrison is now the sixth prime minister Australia's had in 13 years. And he himself took office in in an internal coup against Malcolm Turnbull back in 2018. I've got some theories myself, but why do you think Australia goes through so many prime ministers? And why is backstabbing political colleagues not just common practice, but is almost seen as the expected way to take office? First of all, um, they're making they're having a record that the Japan would be proud of because I used to remember when I was younger give out who the new Japanese prime minister was because they used to change one every year or two or so <laughs> uh, until Shinzo Abe came along for the second time. That's a very good question. I think part of the reason is that energy policy is the big one that has caused the downfall of a few prime ministers and leaders of the opposition because of the starkly different messaging that is required there and the fact that um, prime uh, and the fact that such different policy pronouncements 
have been espoused by even two wings of the same party. That hasn't helped, really. I also think that um, mm-hmm. Australia's three-year electoral cycle doesn't help. If your electoral cycle is three years, you essentially have about a year of governing before you then think about trying to get re-elected in about a year's and a bit time, really. And if a party is polling poorly after a year, and you know this election coming out in one year's time, you're more likely to ditch the leader. As well, Australia's minerals prosperity has meant that there's a lot of money flowing around, and therefore the stakes and office seeking are potentially higher as well. Those are my theories. What do you think, Sam? So I had a little look into the, because I thought maybe the answer lies in within the party structures and how they operate. And obviously, we know that the Liberal National Coalition has its own problems because of it being a coalition. So there's big factional differences. But I was trying and I identified a common problem between the Labour Party and the Liberal Party in particular, is that until quite recently, they had quite straightforward thresholds for removing a leader, which is that you just needed to win over 50% of sitting members. So a couple of articles I read said that you could trigger a ballot on Monday, hold the ballot on Tuesday and swear in your new prime minister on Wednesday. Like that is that is how straightforward these votes used to be until they changed them. And the Liberals changed theirs in December 2018 to require two thirds. It's much more difficult to get two thirds of your parliamentary party on board as opposed to 50 percent. So I think these kind of logistical constraints play a big role in why the turnover was so large because all you needed to do was get half of your party on board and you could oust them i mean the famous one is the julia gillard ousting kevin rudd and then kevin rudd ousting her right back it was just a bit of an exchange of factional divides managing to muster 50 percent of the parliamentary party support and it was actually in response to that conflict that the labor party changed their policy so i thought that that is a big a big reason why, at least historically, that has been the case. I think there's certain merit to the argument. The Rudd, Gillard, Rudd years, the Liberals used to run, you know, chaos. And then the moment they got into government, within a year and a bit, they did the exact same thing to Tony Abbott. And about three years later, to Malcolm Turnbull. And only after then, the rules were changed. But I should say that the Liberals have a different rule compared to Labour. Labour has basically made it almost impossible to change leaders even in opposition, the Liberals, you still require 50%, and it only rises to two-thirds if the prime, if you then get elected prime minister. I see. So there are still some, there is still some instability built into the Liberal system. Of course, Scott Morrison won the 2019 election, so to remove him would require two-thirds majority. And I think you are right that there's an element of that being built into the system. But that doesn't still, in my mind, answer the question. Because in the United Kingdom, in the Conservative Party, they also have, you have to write, uh, yes, you, I think 10% of your parliamentary party to write letters to Graham Brady or the chairman of the 1922 committee. But beyond that, you know, it's still 50% of the parliamentary party to remove. Mm-hmm. It's relatively simple. And if you have, if you could meet the letter threshold, you then only need to meet fifty percent. But the Conservative Party has not changed its leaders so frequently, so I think there are other issues at play here. I think in Australia, I, th- I, I think that. your point on the three-year electoral cycle is a really effective one, because it basically means that your government ha- has like a campaigning culture around it, because it's constantly thinking about the next election. And if if you are worried about party preferences being quite narrow or it looks like you're going to lose the election, you may as well take the gamble and try a new leader because they're only really going to be governing for the first year and then campaigning for the other two. So it doesn't disrupt operations of government, I guess, in the eyes of political parties. Exactly. And, and therefore, that makes changing leaders with such regular occurrence as well. I also think what a big, another problem is that Kevin Rudd was hated by the Labour, by a lot of Labour MPs. He had a personality that grated a lot of them. And Julia Gillard was seen as personally quite popular. However, when her poll numbers turned, it turned back to Kevin Rudd, I think, out of desperation. And it was personality-driven politics 
both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard fell out with each other and haven't, their relationship hasn't recovered at all. Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull also fell out with each other. And the Liberal Party alternated between both of them, largely because of the fact that um, they just hated each other personally. So therefore, if you hate your leader, you stand nothing to lose if you run against them, really. So time is fast running out, but I really did want to turn to the political parties briefly. So first, the Labour Party, largely due to a really horrendous polling mistake, but also, in some respects, a poor campaign as a result. The Labour Party had a bit of a disappointing result in 2019 because they thought they were polling ahead of the Liberal National Coalition for basically the entire government and the entire campaign. And then Bill Shorten's Labour Party didn't manage to get over the line. What do you think is causing problems for the Labour Party nationally that aren't causing problems to like Mark McGowan's Labour Party here or Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland? I think it is a couple of things. One, I think Bill Shorten was very unpopular. He was unpopular as a leader when he started off. He was seen as having a, putting the knife into both Kevin Rudd and later Julia Gillard in 2010-2013. So he was never really personally popular as Mark McGowan and Anastasia Palaszczuk were, who were good fits for their state. So I think that's the first point. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Labour's always found it difficult to win federally. In fact, since the end of uh, World War II in 1945, it has only essentially had two periods in government, which is astonishing, really, from 1983 to 1996 under Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And they won four elections there. And Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard in 2007 to 2013. That's it. The rest of the time, Australia's been governed by conservative governments, So Labour does not win elections often. So I think there's more structural issues to play rather than the 2019 election being one that was blown by Labour. I think people sort of assumed as well that in 2019 that Bill Shorten was going to be elected Prime Minister, that he was almost the Prime Minister candidate in that sense. And Scott Morrison was the insurgent running And Mm -hmm. that was a big difference. Whereas in 2016, when Labour did very well, everyone assumed the coalition was going to win. And so a lot less focus fell on Labour. So I think in the 2021 or 2022 election, Scott Morrison will now face the fact that he is running as the expected prime prime minister after the election. And Labour can run underdog campaign. I think if you look at the past where Labour has been elected in office in 83 and 2007, what's worrying from Labour's perspective is that Kevin Rudd enjoyed a big national lead before the 2007 election. And although Bob Hawke replaced Bill Hayden on the day the election was called as Labour leader, he was phenomenally popular during the five, six week election period, which foretold a Labour government was coming. So therefore, Labour needs to be far ahead in the polls rather than 50-51. And that is Labour's problem because at the moment, the best polls only put in 51 ahead. And we saw that polls in the 2019 election could be far inaccurate. So if I was Labour, I would be a bit concerned. For sure. That's, that's really, it's really interesting that. And I also find it interesting that Australia is another one of those countries where the decline of the centre-left is not really having as huge of an impact. Now, the electoral system probably plays a role here. Yes, it's very different to the UK first-past-the-post situation, but it still lends itself to two large parties operating because the smaller parties' vote just gets disseminated throughout the process. Um, But do you think that there's also different demographic things happening here? Is it because of the urban-rural divide that the Labour Party struggles? Is that, is that the reason? I think you've hit a good nail. That's a good point there. Because in urban areas, Labour's really facing a threat from the Greens. We see that, that they hold one seat in Melbourne and they really are threatening Labour in a few of the inner city seats, in, particularly in Victoria. So therefore, to win back Green voters, you have to adopt a pro-climate change, pro-climate tax message. Mm-hmm. However... 
where Labour lost the election was Queensland. And Queensland is a huge, resource-rich state that swung heavily to Scott Morrison's coalition, which swings over 10% in places like Capricornia, Dawson, and Flynn, which are coal mining towns. And the Adani mine was politically... Labour's position on Adani mine was unclear. Mm-hmm. And the Palaszczuk government had, had stalled approval for it. Now, immediately after the election, the Palaszczuk government approved the mine, largely because I suspect they knew their, how toxic that position was. But to me, that suggests that for Labour to win back the Capricornias and the Dawsons of the world, which might get them closer to government, they have to adopt a message more pro um, more pro-coal, you know, less on emissions reduction. But in turn, that could lose them more seats in urban areas to the Greens. And that, so basically, one will cancel out the other. So yes, climate change being a cleavage issue in Australia could prove particularly problematic for the Labour Party. And that's what they had to watch out for. And even worse, the last election, you saw a lot of swings in places like Western Sydney and the outer suburbs. Because I think Scott Morrison's image as a suburban dad who is you know proud of the Cronulla, um, proud, proud of his rugby league club you know goes to church every Sunday plays well in these outer suburban slightly more low income areas which traditionally Labour used to hold places like Lindsay for example in New South Wales you know Braddon and Bass in Tasmania places like these that Scott Morrison appeal plays well and that could be problematic for Labour in trying to win back some of these seats. Yeah, well, that's certainly what we will be keeping an eye on as we try and find out when the Australian election is going to take place and whether it'll be later this year. And we'll all be keeping our eye on whether the Labour Party can build the profile of Anthony Albanese as well as combat the coronavirus pandemic that is quelling their ability to cut through the narrative and seemingly strengthening Scott Morrison's popularity. So one thing I did just want to say before we end is I just love Australian election coverages. I I was extremely impressed with the ABC coverage I watched of this. And I obviously watched Queensland as well late last year. um, And I was just super impressed. It reminded me of when I watched the coverage of the federal election back in 2019, Julie Bishop's stiletto appearing in graphic form kicking Tony Abbott out of his um, Waringa seat, um, which he lost in 2019. And I just thought, this is fantastic. The, the graphics, the coverage, the, the analysis, I just thought it was brilliant. Well, well just an f- interesting point, because Judy Bishop was a former Liberal deputy leader under Tony Abbott. Mm-hmm. And it was she that tapped him on the shoulder and say, well, I think it's time to go. And a lot of the conservatives never forgave Julie Bishop for that. So I think there was some bad blood since then between Tony Abbott and Julie Bishop. So Well, she got um, her payback on Nine News live on election night back in 2019. Absolutely. And one thing guarantee of Australia is that because it's three-year terms, we are going to have an election round the corner, really. Do you think, therefore, following our discussion today, that Scott Morrison would be tempted to go for an election in the second half of the year, or are you more sceptical than he would like I am? I've always been a little bit sceptical because I think dealing with the coronavirus as the pandemic is raging is a very different political environment to dealing with the reopening after coronavirus because it much more focuses on the economy. And I think the, the pace of the vaccine rollout is going to prove very problematic because you have countries like the UK, where I am, which has dealt with the pandemic pretty woefully across the board, but their vaccine rollout is going quite well. So if you see countries like the UK begin to vaccinate their entire population very quickly and are able to open up borders and go abroad on holiday, but you have Australia still locked down because they haven't vaccinated people, I think that will play very interestingly. So I think Scott Morrison will tread very carefully because the next six months in terms of his personal approval rating in terms of coronavirus could be very treacherous indeed. So, and not to mention the seemingly endless accusations of sexual misconduct and rape in Canberra, which is not helping Scott Morrison's position at all. 
In fact, I think that will be worse for him politically. So I think I think he will hold off and see what happens. I think two points I would say. First of all, the Liberal Party is a woman problem. It's been long acknowledged. Even Julie Bishop acknowledged it that it doesn't have enough women in the ranks. And episodes like this of you know uh, historical rape allegations of vast sexual misconduct in Canberra is not going to help the Liberal Party's cause. But I think it's hope for the Liberals is that if it if the if the elections on the economic recovery, centre right parties you know tend to do better when the campaign is focused on the economy and economic recovery and you could argue that overall Australia has done well as a country zero COVID cases I accept vaccinations could be slow but I wonder how many of them are looking around at their neighbours particularly you know a lot of them came from Europe we still see horrendous statistics in terms of deaths in even in the UK even despite vaccinations have been happening that the government could still be rewarded for what could have been a much more dire situation and one in which they trust the Liberals on the economy much more than Labour. And it's the economy, stupid, is the message. That could be a very hard thing for Labour, which naturally disadvantaged at federal elections we talked about, to win in. Definitely. And I think we'll all be watching the polls on that issue as we wait for whenever this date takes place. But I think for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be diving into the results of this week's Netherlands general election. And as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and now Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. My name is Sam. And until next time, we will speak to you soon.